0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to a fresh new week of Social Convos with your hosts, Shanluk and Diego. Let me. Shanluk, how have you been, man? How was your week?
1: I've, I've been good. I've been good. I can't complain, uh, especially because the guest for, for tonight is somebody who is a, a really, really good friend of mine. So I can't wait uh, to talk tonight
0: awesome so let's get straight into it let the viewers all right know so we're talking with tonight
1: so um, this is someone i met in in san diego in 2000 i think it was 2019 uh that we got introduced and uh in the build-up to the event because he was kind of like my senior my manager my boss for for the event uh, I was like, "Who is this cool dude?" Because I couldn't find any information on, on him. Like all the the seniors that were in the staff of, of this event, and we're talking about social media marketing world in, in San Diego. All the seniors they had like these profiles, and it was very they were pre- branding their pre- personal branding them like crazy. And this guy, this this cool guy, there was like we couldn't find out any, anything about him. And uh, and then we actually got to the event and. He was actually cooler than I actually thought. So uh, we had a click. We had a lot of fun. Uh, We ended up having a lot of talks. He showed me around uh, San Diego. I've been to places in San Diego I didn't know existed thanks to him. And uh, he's also somebody that I look up to when it comes to entrepreneurship. Even though, as you might hear now, you're thinking like this old, fifty-year-old uh, guru who mentors like young entrepreneurs like myself. But actually, it's uh, in when it comes to age, he's actually a lot younger than I am. So I thought it would be good to bring from a very young age, and is really confident, and is really confident about what he does. So I think it's time to bring in Jay Austin.
0: Yeah, welcome, Jay. Welcome to the show. Here's... Lovely Set up there, man. Who
2: made that intro video?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> this was the first Saturday after our pilot episode. I took the whole day um, right here. <laughs> you, you see, you see yeah. the table here, right?: Yeah, we built a little set there. Just had some what do we got around? Some tea. So let's make something with tea. That's a social wow. conversation, right? You have something over coffee RT, so it fit the brand perfectly. That's how that came about.
2: I love that. You've got to use what you've got at your fingertips to create what you can. I love it.
0: Awesome. So welcome to the show, Jay. uh, And um, before we go straight into it, Sean Luke said you're shrouded in obscurity when he went to San Diego. (laughs) And we're talking about social media here. So... Can can you enlighten us? How does that duality work? Because you being so mysterious in some place where people are pushing the personal brand so much.
2: Yeah, to me, uh, I will look at what's happening on social media and be able to say whether I want to be a part of it or not. And so my whole thing back then uh, and now was, we've got to work on spreading ideas. And so when you think about it like that, you think about what platforms we have to spread ideas, whether they're digital or not. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to partake in those things if you don't think that it's healthy for you. So that's why I was probably so mysterious.
1: Yeah, I think so as well. But it's yeah. also it's also being a little bit, it's not necessarily not being pushy, but I mean not really relying on your brand's to tell how qualified you are for a certain job. I thought well, we also discussed skilled labor like a couple of episodes ago. And and you found a way uh, already without, uh, without social media, you already found a way to let people know uh, what your skills are and what why they can hire you. And I think that's very interesting to know because often, especially when we talk about social media marketing, it's all about you have to be out there. You have to brand yourself. You have to post daily. And, and there are actually still ways that you don't have to do that, that people actually can find out like, okay, this person is really, really good uh, in what he or she does without having to post that on a weekly basis online. 100%.
2: Yeah. And I think that um, this speaks to a bigger philosophy of marketing that I think more people should follow because one, it's more effective, but two, it's less pressure, which is... We tend to think that marketing is about climbing the tallest mountain and yelling as loudly as we can so as many people as possible can hear us. And so we create content like that. You know, it's like this constant hamster wheel, right? And you're like, well, we have to post every week. We have to post twice a day. We have to do this. I think the best marketing is the most spreadable marketing. And the way that you spread things isn't by yelling the loudest on the tallest mountain the way that ideas spread is actually beyond you so the question becomes how do you have others spread your ideas and i think one of the best analogies for it is what sort of secrets can i whisper to other people and that's different that's different like imagine being on the receiving end of a secret that somebody's whispering to you rather than on the receiving end of somebody with a megaphone who's yelling at you every week because they feel like they have to. It's way different.
0: Yeah, the whisper just... sounds more special, It makes you feel more special. Yeah,
2: yeah. It, yeah. Does. It, it you know, when you have some sort of like insider information or uh something that you know that others don't, uh it elevates your status and we're much more likely to share ideas that we feel either secure our status or elevate our status, than we are to spread messages that don't feel like they're for us.
0: Speaking of messages and you touched on marketing already, you're based in Kansas now and we've recently, we had this big game and you just told us before we went on, we are not allowed to say that name, but we're going to do it anyway. The Super Bowl is something that, you know, um, every year it's a big event. It's like one of the biggest mar- marketing blocks for companies, basically, to have a be a part of that stage. So bringing that into context of what you just told us now that messaging being loud versus being secretive and quiet. How do you think that translates to the Super Bowl? And I think the, the community and hype it that's built around it
2: yeah so um first of all i think that it deserves the hype so from a marketing perspective we're talking about one of the three largest media events in the world any given year and so attention and you also have uh this very odd moment where people maybe they showed up for the game but a lot of them showed up for you And that, I mean, like, when does that ever happen as a marketer? Like, that's your wet dream, you know? Um, So I think it deserves the hype. But um, I still think that most companies overspend on not the ad placement, like the number of dollars it takes to actually exist in 30 seconds or 60 seconds or 15 seconds. But I think they're overpaying a lot of times in the production value of that message. And an odd thing happens in their mind, which is they go into this this game and they understand what's in the palm of their hands and they've paid all this money to exist in this ad spot that they actually feel like it's their duty to yell as loudly as they can about their product or else it's a waste of money. But uh, I'd argue that even though the audience is humongous and the reach is humongous, there's still a way to spread a whisper, right? So, like, um, if anybody's familiar with the Mountain Dew commercial. Did you guys see that one?
1: What Would they share? Yeah. No, we. I didn't see the Mountain Dew. I actually shared a lot of the ones that were shown, but I don't remember seeing a Mountain Dew commercial.
2: Okay. So, the Mountain Dew yeah. commercial was great. It had uh, an ex-WWE wrestler, John Cena, and uh, a couple other characters and it was really, it was cartoony, it was like all these bubblegum pop colors and they were selling a new type of Mountain Dew. And you're watching half of the commercial and it looks just like any other type of, you know, uh, soda commercial or pop commercial. But then about halfway through it, they let you in on a secret, which is if you're the first account to tweet at us, with certain hashtags how many bottles of mountain dew were featured in the commercial then you can win a million dollars
0: Ooh, that is some high stakes right there yes
2: that to me is a great example of a whisper because now even if they didn't share the actual video people are talking about it because they're like yo help me count these bottles help me count these books right And so that's a great example of a whisper working in a place where most people yell.
1: Okay, quickly, before we go to the comment section, because there are already a lot of comments coming in, uh, what about the Cards of Humanity potato ad? Is that also kind of a whisper or is that something different?
2: No, I think think that that's part of a whisper because um, one of the mistakes that I think big production companies make and big advertisers make, especially, is they make ads that they hope resonates with a wide, wide, wide audience. But the problem with that is the classic adage of when you speak to everyone, you're speaking to no one. And so (laughs) paradoxically, like oddly enough, when you're creating great ad content or marketing content in general. one approach to it is to actually find the audiences that you hope hate your stuff who say i don't get it it wasn't funny that was stupid that just means that they weren't in on it and so the cards against humanity one is select for the people who understand what the nuances of that game are and what it actually feels like to be sitting in a circle when you're playing the game like that actual feeling that you get it happened to be about potatoes, you know, or whatever it was. So yeah, I think that's a great example of a whisper yeah. or a yell.
1: Yeah, so so short, for those who don't know the Cards Against Humanity uh, Super Bowl ad, they just put a potato in display. And I think they wrote ad on it, or something like that. It was just 30 seconds of a potato on screen. And that was the whole freaking ad. And yeah. that was like, they paid, They you don't want to know how much they paid And then the day after, um, the the CEO of the company released a statement on Medium explaining why it failed and discussing the whole process of how to make a Super Bowl ad and how everything went wrong. And they they couldn't find the right uh, potato and there were different other concepts, but they got canned. And the whole process, like he goes through the whole creative process and it ends up just being a potato. And that's kind of the, the whole idea behind the ad was. And this is, of course, a company that, that screws around with these kind of things. So that's, that's also really interesting. So Diego, do you want to share quickly, go through the comments?
0: Yeah, definitely. Well? Um, we got uh, Greg, as always, first in to check out our audio and video. Thanks for giving us that feedback straight away, looking and sounding great. Um, Marvin is tuning in from Facebook. Really interesting stuff. Great subject. Hedwig is his uh, avid listener as well, and we got some a question here from Gregory straight up. And you touched uh, upon that thing of um, bad marketing or bad publicity. Before we go to this question, his second oh, question, yeah, yeah, was, can you explain the perspective on there's no such thing as bad publicity? Um, I think you already touched upon it a bit because. Uh, that Cards Against Humanity thing is like meme culture at its finest, and that's the internet. Um, but if you could elaborate a bit more on that statement, that there's no such thing as bad publicity.
2: Yeah, so I think that's a lie that was produced by marketers. Uh, and so I think that there absolutely is bad publicity. <laughs> you know, I mean, like if you're in a position where <laughs> where... I mean it's the it's it's a great marketing line isn't it like no publicity is bad publicity which like another way to say it is like um all press is good press and um yeah. I think that like I think that that actually speaks to one of the the illnesses that we tend to have when it comes to buying things and and consumerism as a whole is that we've somehow convinced ourselves that that like any amount of attention is good attention. Um, but that that's obviously not true. I mean, like there's attention that we don't want and if we get it, we're not grateful for it. Right. So, like, I think that that might be that line is a symptom of that, but in the marketer's defense in the marketer's defense. Um, so I think that there if you if you possess a certain ability to constantly move the target, then no pub- no publicity is bad publicity, right? Um, and we can get political really quick, but those are the types of people who
1: yeah. never yeah. suffer
2: from bad publicity. Um, and then some of the most extreme people um, in whatever ideology, some of the most extreme folks they don't care about bad publicity either because people talking badly about them adds even more cohesiveness to the in-group.
1: Right? Uh, yeah. And so yeah, yeah.
2: So that's where that statement works, but if you're like trying to sell a good product then no, come on. No. Of course there's bad publicity. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So basically, is it do you mean like in an extremist form or just your style or your brand is built around that in-group, knowing that there is a very big community against them?
2: Both. Both. I think it works uh, as well for brands as it does for cults.
1: Yes. Okay, so I I do want to jump back into that uh, because we are seeing a lot of tribal culture. So what what I'm noticing in, 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 in the social media space at the moment is you have kind of two fields. You have kind of the, the big mainstream, the, the Facebook Inc. kind of where everybody has to be there because we all have to be there because everybody's there. We have these small tribal communities coming up and social media uh, platforms that are really tribal-based. So do you consider that a good thing, that that, that these tribes are, are starting to exist?
2: Oh, man, this is, this is such a nuanced question because yeah. – um, Uh, So, you know, I'm in the U.S. where we claim that free speech is one of the inalienable rights of our country. Um, And with that freedom comes this challenge of trying to figure out what qualifies as free speech versus hate speech. Um, What what qualifies as as inhibiting free speech. Right. So, like, for example, when people who are more conservative minded in the US are taken off of a platform like YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, is that a publisher taking that voice away? Is it a private company saying, well, you're basically like a person who's not wearing a shirt in our store. We don't want you. Is that what it? Is? So it gets very tricky. And, and so um, with platforms like Parler, or 4chan or 8chan these places that essentially exist without rules around what you say there's a really hot debate about whether that is whether that's something that should be allowed to exist Um, so let me give you an analogy here so like there are some people uh who believe that People need a place to take out their anger so that they don't take it out on other people. And so, uh, in the US, for example, you might have had this in Suriname. There are these places called anger rooms. Do you guys have these?
1: Uh, We have a rage room. We have a rage room here.
2: Rage room. Rage rooms. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, We have one. Yeah.
2: And you're like, basically, you're giving people an outlet. And the whole argument is like, okay, well, if they go and break these plates and hit each other with pillows and stuff, then they won't shoot our schools up. That's like the that's the mindset, right? Uh, Whether that works or not is just highly debatable. So when we come back to the digital era, we're trying to ask this question of like, first of all, what are people's rights? Second of all, what happens when we take them off of the most influential and mainstream platforms? Well, I can tell you this much, their existing ideas don't just go away. If anything, their existing ideas are reinforced by the other people who believe that the platforms are out to eliminate their philosophy. And so uh it becomes a, a really difficult situation in terms of like like what is the end goal? Are we trying to eradicate white supremacist ideas? Are we trying to it's it's a really complicated conversation, but personally, Jean-Luc um I think it's okay that these sorts of platforms exist because I'm the type of person who wants to know what somebody really thinks. That's very valuable to me. I want to know what you actually think, who you actually are, because I'm also the type of person who is willing to meet you where you're at. Um, But I don't think a lot of the world is really designed that way because it's really hard and I'm not even that good at it
0: but i think i think that's where i land on the subject i think that's uh, before we segue yeah. to yeah. next part um just some more shout out from joseph uh, what's up he's here every week as well um hadwig we said the word bad itself says it all oh finally got someone from linkedin yeah. maybe it's not so much bad publicity but it's controversial publicity being good publicity thoughts on that so we substitute the word bad for controversial because controversial is all the rage nowadays because you got so many sides to any topic that you can't really distinguish if it's um, like a force of good or a force of evil in a sense
2: yeah stephanie i think that's a a fascinating point so controversial publicity um so the way I'd approach that is that, like, a lot of publicity is naturally controversial if it's seen by a certain audience that just doesn't agree with what you have to say. Um, when you're on the creator side of things, I, there's, a, there's a word that we use for people like this in the U.S. called provocateur. Provocateur. <laughs> and these are people who some people believe uh have cultivated a personality that uh is uniquely designed to only provoke the other side into doing something out of anger and they're provocateur i don't i don't think that that's the best use of your life personally (laughs) uh to like live to be controversial um but i would say that like Going out and saying what you actually believe while remaining open-minded to different versions of the story um, and and like challenging yourself, I think that's fine. Um, Again, I really do think it depends on the brand, right? If you're in in brand messaging can fluctuate. If you're in a spot in your brand where you need to figure out who your truest tribe is or your fans are, then... Part of the strategy could be, well, what can we say to isolate ourselves from others, right? Um, But if that's not in the brand play, then I don't think it has to be super controversial. I think it can just be as simple as, like what Seth Godin says, um, creating messaging that basically says, people like us do things like this. And it can be non-controversial. And it can make everybody feel a little bit better.
1: It's interesting that you say that. I remember when Guy Kawasaki was in, in San Diego. And he was just saying like, you should post on LinkedIn whatever you want. I post political stuff. I post search, surfing, uh, surfing stuff. And everybody in the room was like, listen, you're Guy Kawasaki. You have a million followers on LinkedIn. You can't do that. <laughs> you know, We can't. If we would do that, we would lose half of our following. So it's 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 also something that you're thinking like, is it something that you are in a privileged position that you can say certain things and be yourself in social media when it comes to you having a certain following already uh, compared to somebody who's just starting out, trying to figure stuff out?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, the way that I approach that would be like, I don't really i think like with great power comes greater responsibility but what that means is different to everybody you know like one of the things that that i think we have to realize just as like humans not even marketers but just like humans is that the person who we disagree with and like low-key kind of hate right we're like dude would you just shut up like stop saying that shit um that person might actually believe what they're saying as much as we believe what we believe. And so all of us lie, all of us fib to a certain degree, but we all believe in something as much as the other person believes in something else. Um, and so so I think like when it comes to having status and how you use your social media, like that person who said that thing might actually believe that thing that they said and they're not intentionally trying to mislead people. They like, those are some of the most dangerous people, right? Not the charlatans, the ones who we can eventually find out, but the ones who, like, actually believe in bad ideas. Those are the ones who are like, oh, no, 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 this is bad. This, is, this can spiral out of control, you know? Um, but, like, with what Guy said, um, I do think that, like, especially in... Well, I, this probably exists all over the world. When you reach a certain level of money and a certain status of people around you like the way that you view the world can change drastically like like the choices that you're presented are just different than the choices that other people are presented but you don't know that because you're not living their reality and and I think at that point in time that's when you can get up in front of a st- in front of like a thousand people on stage and say whatever you want to say and there's really no consequence to it so I do think that like privilege moves us away from the potential outcomes of our words you know that you wouldn't be able to get away with if you were just uh, if you were just starting out on your brand
1: okay uh, quickly one question I wanted to tell Gregory Gregory yes we have a rage room in Suriname I, honestly I have to pull up information on it but we do actually have a rage room in Suriname so uh, I saw, I've saw, i seen pictures and I've seen people destruct things, uh, destroy things. So there's definitely a rage room here.
0: I did yes. not know that either. Well, the more you yeah. know.
1: <laughs> Actually,
2: can think... we talk about this for a second? Can we talk yes. about rage rooms?
1: Yeah. 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 Okay.
2: One of the things that I deeply appreciate about a rage room is that it is a It it is an idea with a very specific audience in mind. So when if you ever go into their marketing room and you're talking with their team, I almost guarantee you that they don't care how old you are. They don't care what your income level is. What they're tapping into is, well, what do these people feel? And where do they want to go with those feelings? right? What do they believe and where do they want to go with those beliefs? And that's why rage rooms are appealing to a lot of people is that even if it's not like a huge overwhelming sensation that we would have um, for me to go to a rage room and need it and to need it, it would be I'm telling myself that I'm the person that can control my anger and can control my emotions and I may have been working on this for 15 or 20 years and going to that rage room makes me feel better, not just because I can get my rage out, but because it proves to myself that I'm not the person to take this out on another person, but I'm the person who can take it out on this plate, this pillow, this TV, whatever it is. So I, I, I think that's actually a really cool example of how most brains can and should market, figure out what they feel, what they want to feel, what they believe, and where they want to take their beliefs.
1: This is interesting because I think people also use social media platforms like that. Like, for instance, Twitter. Like, people, like, especially in Suriname, a lot of people use Twitter to, like, do their banter and things that they wouldn't normally do on other channels. and. Uh, on a, a burner account almost not necessarily burner account but definitely not a public account. and it's it's really it's really fascinating that you mentioned that because basically people are looking for a place where they can just let out they, they yeah they can they can move away from daily life and, and this is this is a const companies as well because basically people are on social media not to connect with brands. They're on social media to be entertained, to go away from their hard work. They want to relax. They want to enjoy. They want to have fun. Um, because it's, it's in their leisure time, basically. And then then all come in the brands. And the brands are like, wait a minute. We know you're kind of relaxing. That's We can, stimul- we can stimulate your brain. Let's start targeting you. Let's just dump all this information on you to get you excited about our brands. Whereas the general public is like, yeah, I mean, if it's good, I'll enjoy it. But it's not that I'm on social media constantly to be like attacked by brands. So this is a fairy. And this is this is one of the struggles that I'm struggling with as a, as a social media marketeer is basically finding the balance between on the one side saying like, wow, social media is amazing because you can directly be in contact with your clients and you can directly message in, in the kind of style, the tone of voice that they appreciate. And on the other side, from a personal perspective, yeah, but it's it's really taking away all your privacy, away all of your control. So it's it's kind of this double-edged sword where, where you kind of – you can either view it as you're always winning or you can view it as you're always, always losing.
2: Yes, yes, I agree with that. I think that, like um, – well, did you guys see the, the documentary Social Dilemma?
0: Yes, I did, yeah.
2: So, um, The Social Dilemma, for, for our viewers who haven't heard of that yet, um, I recommend go watching it, just so that you're informed on uh, the mindsets of the people who created these things and how their perspective on what they've created has evolved over time. Um, at the very least, it's interesting thought piece to sit and talk with your friends about. But one of the things that the main character of that film talked about tristan harris was that every time that we open our phone uh not just to social media apps but to any app that wants our attention what we're doing is we're taking this uh very old ancient piece of technology right and we're pitting it up against uh a supercomputer and i think that that is something that is it's important that we at least recognize that that's happening. And you can make a decision about how deeply you want to engage with the supercomputer or not. But at the end of the day, we are not fully equipped to be able to withstand this supercomputer's main goal, which is to interact with you more. We're just not equipped for it. So you can put protections up, against yourself if you want. You can totally give it up and go abstinent, or you could go all in. But I think that it's really important that we understand that it's us engaging with a supercomputer. And at the end of the day, that thing is going to outlearn us. It's going to figure out our ticks quicker. And I feel like we're at a point, without being too dystopian, I feel like we're at a point where we've passed the point of no return when it comes to understanding our ticks understanding our facial structures, understanding our movements, and then using that against us to do certain things.
0: Yeah. I've seen it as well, and I highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't seen it. And it gives us a perspective, especially from the creators of these big companies, how meta it actually is. Because they themselves know what they're creating, but fall victim to their own creations. And somehow they're still doing it because it's like a vicious cycle that you've said maybe we've reached the point of no return and you've mentioned this word a very key word attention attention is the game that they're playing that's the currency actually in this medium the way i see it Um, because when you're on your screen that's the thing that they want not focus on your work, not focus on your family, but the attention to look at a screen, get this advertisement and eventually get into a sales funnel to click through something and purchase that thing on Amazon that you don't actually need.
1: Sure.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the marketers dilemmas that we have is trying to figure out what role we play in that society and. Uh, so I try to encourage people as often as I can, as often as the topic comes up, that if you're a marketer, your goal is not to encourage more people to buy things or to join another list. Your your responsibility is to create something that you could live with that, like, elevates that person's life. And that's the, that's the responsibility of a marketer, uh, marketer. What's happening, though, right, is that, like, I think we've told ourselves a myth about social media platforms in that that social media platforms today are the TVs of the 1950s and 60s uh, or the newspapers of the 20s, 30s and 40s. You know, like we've we think that it's just a substitute for those things, but it's not. It's not that desire that you have to do. The scroll down to pull down didn't exist 15 years ago this is a new thing it didn't exist nobody went to like the newspaper stand and was like oh i just have to feel a newspaper i'm so addicted didn't happen uh television it got close because we became uh we put it on a schedule right hey we have to be down by 6:30 to watch the show um but new technology allowed yeah. us to watch it whenever but the, the infinite scroll, this desire to do this or to reach for it when you don't have anything to reach for, that is not new or I, that's not old. That is a new thing. That is a totally new thing. And so we can't like continue to lie to ourselves that this is a harmless medium. You know. So from a marketer's perspective, uh, social media is not the only platform. That's the good thing. So like social media is still not the only platform for your art it's not the only platform to do great work but if it is the only platform that your boss is telling you to create on then my suggestion my recommendation is to always try to nudge the client towards creating more responsible content that you can live with
0: your man, managed your a marketer and also an entrepreneur so this actually segues, segues to the part of this the, the main topic of today building that confidence as an entrepreneur and you having this uh, the background of a marketer let's say you know all of this and we got these up and coming young entrepreneurs who are basically walking into this space naked unarmed so how would you go about or maybe if you could share with us your personal story on how you came to be the J that is meaningful and that wants that personal touch with the person to understand them how did that came about how Hmm. can these young entrepreneurs develop that
2: yeah um i am not finished getting better. I'm not like you and and I are meeting on this trajectory that we hope is trending upwards. But some people will go down, I might go down, some people say same, some people go up. So I'm not finished getting better. And that's a lie that we seek out. That's one of those few lies that we actually want to hear is that if I watch social confos, or if I watch this piece of content that that I can be them on the screen because they're done developing they've figured it out look I'm not ever gonna claim that I figured that part out but what I think I have learned when it comes to developing confidence as a business builder the the distinction between self-confidence and self-efficacy self-esteem there's a big difference between those two, that's important to understand, okay? Self-confidence is situational, okay? Self-esteem is a status. Self-esteem is a constant state of being. This is more important to build, self-esteem, because if self-confidence is situational, then if you find yourself in a situation that you're not confident in, then you might just quit. You might just end, unless you have the self-esteem that tells you that it's okay to not be confident. Does that make sense? Like, like we tend to seek out confidence. We don't necessarily need confidence. We need the base rock. We need the 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 platform to launch off of, whether we have the rocket or not. Um, so here's an example, right? Okay. Uh, In the NBA, right, you have these tremendous athletes, right? But all of them were 15 or 16 years old at some point in time, okay? Now, at 15 or 16 years old, there's a chance that they were not the best basketball player on the team, right? So if they went to their competitive team and they played and they got their asses whooped, they wouldn't feel that confident, right? But if they went and they played on their little brother's team with nine year olds, (laughs) they're pretty confident that they could win. Right. Um, So that means that it's situational confidence is situational. But the self-esteem existed there. The self-esteem was like, I can go on any court and get better. That's my belief about myself. I can go anywhere and get better. Um, So I think that we have to make that distinction and not kick ourselves when we don't feel confident. It's not about confidence. It's about what do I do when I show up? What is my mindset when I show up? I'm going to get better. I'm going to outlast this. I'm going to have grit. I'm going to stick in there. And then ironically, that's how you develop confidence. You show up and 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 you start looking around and all the original people you showed up with aren't there anymore because they stopped because they let confidence or no confidence get in the way. Show up, show up, show up, show up, show up, show up, show up. You look around, and you're like, "Holy shit!" I'm like, kind of the last person standing. I'm kind of good at this, but you only got that way because you showed up even when you weren't confident.
0: We got quite. That's exactly all I gotta
2: say about that.
0: <laughs> Mic drop. Sean, <laughs> <laughs> look, we got a, quite a few more comments that came in. If you wanna go through them. And then we can move yeah, on. Yeah,
1: I'm not sure. And, uh, sure. Okay, so so let's see. Gregory, we're going to pick one out. I think we're going to pick this one out. So when, how does a marketeer decide to expand the client base and start targeting a different demographic? Do you, uh, do, you do it incrementally at or at once? Or is there no clear answer? Just curious.
2: Yes, that's actually a really good answer. My suggestion, Gregory, is, and I'm reading your question again. Okay. Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. 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 So the very first thing, Gregory, is to not use demographic as your first filter, but instead figure out what people who you're targeting believe about your product. So find their belief set first, and then you'll start realizing that a demographic matters at that point, but go, go for their mindset first. Um, but I know I'm nitpicking, so, so how do you decide to extend? Um, my suggestion is to always be trying new markets, but to do it in a way where your risk is very low or for your client is very low. So if you are, a great marketer is a great observer of the world, right? The great marketer will listen and they'll hear things that other people don't. They will look and they'll see things that other people miss. And that's a skill. That's not intuitive. That's a skill. You can develop that. And so when you are there and you notice that a customer interacted with a product in a different way, and it occurs to you that you've never thought about pitching that product in that way, then develop a very small, cost effective, low risk way to explore that market and then allow yourself to be surprised. And if it fails, it didn't cost you that much because you actually got a good ROI on it, right? Your ROI is off. Oh, that's not our market. That saved you a lot of money. So, so that would be my advice is always be observing and then test the markets all the time and then allow yourself to be surprised.
1: Because if there's really a demand for it, people will let you know. I mean, you, will, you will, there will be, it won't be one person. It will be like six or seven people will come up to you, like, are you doing that? And then all of a sudden you're going to be like, is this part of my core? Should it be part of my core? And then, then it, it comes automatically. But what happens often is you also have these people that just want to hear you out, they, they just want the information. And then you think that they are a potential client or they are interested, but they just trying to figure out the market. So they ask you all these questions with no intentions of ever uh, purchasing a product or a service from you. And then if you, you if you if you perceive that as like this is an opportunity in the market, then uh, you're at higher risk of of think that there's actually no demand for. But it's like six seven people like, can you do this? there is a demand for it because there are so
0: sorry about that you're cutting out a bit there Shanluk. luke um but i think we see where you're going with it if there's the, the demand people will uh you, you'll get a signal and i guess the follow-up to that the thought i have is you have this data on your clients on your marketing and you're testing out these new waters so you get the signals or not but as a business marketeer um, sticking to the theme of self-esteem and confidence how do you integrate this hard data factual data these numbers and this feeling that you have to actually deliver to your potential clients
2: Mm. yeah so approaching a new venture can be nerve-wracking and so i think one of the best ways to view yourself if you are trying to spread an idea whether you're a marketer or not is to consider yourself a learner that's your primary goal I'm a learner, I just happen to create content to uncover what I need to learn, right? And so that's how I would use your data. And and for Gregory and anybody else who is pondering, like how do you go into these different markets? Here's a really tactical way to do this, okay? A very low risk way for you and your organization to do this. Before you look for any new client, okay, find, Somebody who's used you more than once. And if you can't find that, then find somebody who has recommended you to somebody who they know. And every now and then, you actually find somebody who does both. They have used you more than once and they trust you. And so now they recommend you to their friends or whoever's around them. The reason why that is one of the low cost ways of entering a new market is because that person who bought multiple times might be buying your product or service or whatever uh, for a different reason than what they have recommended you for so so you might actually find if you imagine like a venn diagram you know like the two overlaps so What's most likely to happen is if you find a repeat client or customer uh, or somebody who's recommended you, you're not going to find two perfect circles overlying. You're going to find some sort of Venn diagram and that's a new market. That's a whole new belief set about your product that you can start tapping into and messaging.
0: Moving forward with that low cost going to um, using clients that have used you multiple times and actually expanding to these little communities. And we've mentioned it before, the tribes. Um, You create, in a sense, advocates for your service or product. But do you think... Or let me rephrase this. There's a lot of... um, these little communities and tribes coming up and about and these platforms are being built to actually differentiate themselves from the giants like Facebook. And one of the recent ones, uh, we've mentioned it briefly before, is Clubhouse. And there you get highly, highly influential people and uh, in the space. Uh, in this little room and you as a young individual who's just touching the waters, get the chance to be in the space with them. Do you think that, or what's your take on these platforms bridging in a sense, the gap between the people way up there and the little guys and how does that add to building these niche communities and holding it together
2: Hmm. yeah so um remember how we were talking about whispers first so clubhouse is a great example that basically any type of brand can use of generating whispers that we tell to each other right Uh, so for people who are unfamiliar with it Um, I don't know if it's still this way. Is it still this way that you have to get invites?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you have to have an an iPhone.
1: iPhone.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you have to have an iPhone. So that's already one group. (laughs) But then, um, but the way that Clubhouse built its initial following and is still building its following is that you have to receive an invitation from someone who's already been invited to the platform. And the person who invites you only has a certain number of invitations that they can make. So they treasure it, right, Um, in theory. And so uh, what we've seen with Clubhouse is that it felt like a status raising opportunity and it was to a lot of people. Like if you're the type of person who values being at an invite only event, then you loved Clubhouse right? You still love it. What's going to happen with the platform is most likely what's happened with a lot of other platforms, which is you're going to see what's called stratification. So you're going to see what appears to look like this, right? So like I have status because these people who I really value are on it. And instead of raising my status and equaling the playing field, It's going to go from this to this. The field is going to spread. That's what it's going to be like. It's already like that in in different parts of of the app, right? So, like if you were on in the early days, then you had a ton of followers who signed up um, to follow you, even if you weren't that good of a content creator. But if you're like a Kylie Jenner, You know, you're already up here. So you're going to start seeing stratifications within Clubhouse. And the reason why I know that this is going to happen, like I'm going to like stake my hat on it, is because this happens at every exclusive club anywhere in the world. (laughs) Like a physical exclusive club. There's always that group of people who can't stand to be with the people who they used to be. So they got it like this. And that's just really tough to manage. But I think that they're okay with that. I don't think that, that Clubhouse is like really freaking out about something like that. I mean, I'm not in their internal talks. but but it's not, not, yeah. it's not
1: in their model. It's not in their model. I think that it's not in their model. I don't think that's that's what the app is about. The app is about the idea that me and you and any person can just jump into a Clubhouse and have Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg be a guest, and you can all of a sudden – you're in like you're within reach of that person which is kind of a a version of twitter 2.0 because twitter in the beginning had kind of the similar idea that uh you would usually not be able to reach out to richard branson but now you can just send him a tweet and, and and in the beginning he would even reply to it you know so i think it's it's basically kind of an evolvement a more video format of how the early social media kind of made the connections uh, closer it's it's like you're 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 there with one one tweet you can tweet something out and, and Elon Musk could retweet you or respond to it and then it's like ah you know and and I think that's that's something that I don't necessarily think that's a, it's a, it is an evil what I'm really worried about a little bit is uh, we're so into hypes and trends at the moment that, if you, if you can distinguish it, if you can distinguish that something is a trend and understand that it's hype today and it eventually either fades out and you know when it's going to fade out or, or understand that it's not going to fade out because it evolves in something else, if you can make the distinction between the two, you're fine. But if you cannot make the distinction between something that's really going up and up and up and it's going to crash in 30 days and something that's actually sustainable… Uh, that's where we get into rough, rough territory. Yeah.
0: And I think that's the challenge, that distinction.
1: I something. Yeah.
0: Because what Jay mentioned, yeah. especially following the social I, dilemma. I quickly
1: want to come back here. to if, uh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, I'm going to take you back to 1967 with uh, Guy de was this French philosopher and, um, he wrote the society of the spectacle. And I think that at the time in the 60s, he couldn't predict where we would be going with social media and, 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 and mobile development and, and mobile technology. But he already explained that we were living in a society of, of mass consumption. And kind of mass consumption was kind of taking over the way we live. So all of a sudden, your life is not about who you are and what you are about, but how you represent yourself. So you get these facades of people and companies that they look like legit companies, they look like legit personal brands, but there is like no, there's no depth to them, and um, and we we often even we get we become those people or we kind of make statements of representations of who we are, which are not filled with actual depth, and and once that happens, that's when kind of everything starts to crumble because certain people start having expectations of a platform of a person of a company and it was built up and that's the whole bubble system that's why we keep talking about bubbles because every decade there is another sector or branch that just pops up It, it becomes beautiful and the big ones stay of course the big ones always stay but there are also a lot of big ones and a lot of small ones that just disappear and go bankrupt completely and completely crash. And I think that's more my worry than um, than than whether or not the platform, because the platform eventually, if it's good, it will work. We've seen that already. If a platform is good, it will work, it will stay around. But if it's just too much hyped up in the beginning, that's when really it disappears and crashes down.
0: I think you got to make a distinction as well between platform and the community that, gets into that platform or is around that platform because it, in the end, it's the people that make sure that this platform stays alive and Jay said it, this stratification if I had to describe it in another way would you say it's a dilemma of scale? Uh, in a sense that as it grows the tribe grows, the community grows and then you get this bigger like gap between, at first you are this close to each other, but the gap gets bigger as the community grows and you get kind of out of touch with the core belief that started it. So in a sense, that is kind of uh, the downfall of it. And then you, you get other platforms that try to do the same thing. So there's a dilemma of scale. Our Facebook comes with the
1: same thing. Our Facebook develops something that's similar.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And then they just get outfunded. But I mean, I think this is like, I think you bring up a good point, bro. Is that like, this is a competition of incentives. You know, I think that like, if Clubhouse wanted to stay very small and that's their choice, then they could make that choice. But I don't know if they are venture-backed, like if they're funded by venture money, their investors won't allow that. Their investors will not allow them to stay as small as uh, they want So, but this is true for like any tribe, right? Like if you run like a, a social good organization, like a nonprofit, and you don't really sell anything, but you're trying to spread an idea about a change that you want to make, for most organizations, there's a a threshold that you can't cross without sacrificing part of your mission, part of the way you operate, things like this. And so I think it's important for people who are listening, if you're running an organization, to figure out what is big enough. What is big enough? And it is completely okay, if you do your work, for the rest of your life and you do not attain the wealth that Mark Zuckerberg has attained. It is completely okay. Um, That is, it's almost maybe better if you don't, right? Like you wouldn't have to show up for Senate hearings and worry about all this other shit. But like what is big enough for me and work really hard to maintain that, right? At the threshold so you can do what you want to do and you can leave this earth happy knowing that you did some good shit.
0: Speaking of nice. getting big enough and actually deciding for yourself what you're happy with, um, I want to go a bit personal with you, with your what you're doing now. Because during the last social media conference, when you are physically here, you are still running this marketing agency. You had a decent team, uh, rapidly growing, but in was it late 2019. You kind of made a switch to a new company a new brand a new mission so can you tell us more about what triggered that and how that went about what's the mission behind that and yeah what's the the personal happiness factor in that of doing that
2: so at the time that we met down in paramaribo and i drank far too much Parvo and Burgo and just had a blast. Um, I was running an agency and we're producing videos all over the world and it was super, super fun. Um, And I would not trade that time in for anything in the world. What was happening was I would look around my studio and I would only see people who had a certain level of privilege that allowed them to become videographers in the first place. You know, it's expensive. It's expensive to buy your first camera. It's expensive to take the time to learn how to do this and buy the software and everything. And uh, I had a moment where I was like, you know what? We have this magical power. We have this camera. We know how to use it. We can tell stories. I want to start telling different stories. I want to start telling stories about social issues. I want to start telling stories about people who don't have any money. I want to start telling stories about people who are held back by things like racism or sexism or ageism. Those are the stories I wanted to tell. And so I just jotted it down in my book, you know, my idea book and put it on the shelf. Well, uh, what I decided to do, and I could do, I could have done this better. I didn't do it the best way. Um, and I wouldn't do it the same, but I decided to reroute a whole bunch of our resources towards creating stories about that stuff. And it didn't sit well with some of my other founders. Um, and I totally get that. And, uh, and so we ended up splitting the founding team and that was on my birthday in 2019. And my (laughs) remaining founder... Uh, was like, this has been a weird birthday. Let's go get some wine and we'll finish up. And so the guy's pouring us some wine and she's looking at me and she goes, I have a scary question. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, what? Because it had been a crazy day. And she goes, what if you don't do this anymore? And I was like, "What? wait, what do you mean? And she's like, what if you just like go and do that idea that you wrote down? And I was like, wow, okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and it was like that. It was literally like that. Like, like it felt like it was one of the most torrential heavy downpours in Suriname. And then all of a sudden the sky goes, Whew. That's what it was like. And that idea was an idea that would basically take me to where I'm at today in launching another agency that focuses on uh, a really important topic here in the U.S. specifically uh, called mass incarceration, um, and so we can get into that if you want. I don't know where you want to take it, but but that was the journey to starting that agency.
1: I think I think we have to reinfine him uh, again, Diego. I think we definitely have to do that. And,
0: whole yeah. Thing to
1: episode yeah um so guiano joined in uh, i'm gonna go to the sideline questions first um first one is uh yeah we're commenting so guiano we're getting comments in from linkedin from youtube and from facebook so that means that you won't be able to see all the comments that we're sharing here because some will be on another platform and uh jay shout out to the to the orange beanie that you're wearing as well and then to get into, uh, whoa, this is a fairly long text. So given the example of the bubble for every 10 years, uh, if, you, if you take every platform as something that's finite instead of something that's going to last forever, I think that's the mindset change will cause you to just use that platform for the best of your ability, learn from it, make an impact, while stay agile enough to move your core abilities and impact to another platform. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if we would, if we would still hang on to internet explorer, we would feel terrible right now because this, I I don't even know if, if, if StreamYard would actually run on internet explorer. (laughs) That's, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, it's true. Let's keep it at that.
2: Yeah. Um, first of all, shout out to Guyana, (laughs) like you are my guy. Uh, we will meet up for drinks again one day for sure, for sure. Um, and, and to add to what he said, look, I think that if you are a creative person that you should look at every new platform as a fun, creative challenge. Um, and then from a legal standpoint, right? Uh, if you are a creator, work as hard as you can to always own your content or at least have usage rights. Like if you're working for an employer or somebody's hired you, try to negotiate that in so that you can look at this stuff 20 years from now and 30 years from now, and maybe even make money from it. Now, if you're the employer or or the client, you should own the stuff. <laughs> <That way. laughs> but what's what's amazing is that like, For my creative people out there, there are a lot of creatives who don't understand how the legal side of creativity works. My encouragement is to fight for your rights to own the stuff that you create. That's your genius. Nobody else is going to be able to create that the exact same way you did. So fight for your right to own it. If you're on the client side, fight for your right to own it because that genius is never happening again. But sometimes people leave things out of of contracts. And so if you slip it in there, then boom, yeah. you've got your
1: portfolio. Yeah, so that's what Diego and I did when we started social confos. We both said we owe the rights to the social confo. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love it. I
2: yeah. love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's I mean this is this is and I mean we got into it, this with, with clients a lot, like or, Oh no. In the beginning uh, yeah, can you am I still testing testing, testing, testing testing? Yeah. Um in the beginning we had issues that we wanted to use photos from our clients there. They would have like our clients would have like a calendar, a yearly with twelve we, those are perfect for like we're allowed to use them <laughs> we don't have the rights to those photos I'm like what how, how is that possible so where we're really learning how to refurbish like we talked in the pre-talk about learn reuse con- re- brand content for a different platform just stage it around something this kind of video with three blocks of us me diego jay you can't use that if you go to on TikTok. But what you can do on TikTok is take over, like, the best 15 seconds of a certain topic and post stories. And all of a sudden, it's good content for that platform. But we're just not wired that way to the transform and like, okay, we have something that's really great content, and we have to, uh, yeah, re edit the content in such a way that it works for the platform that we want to use it for.
0: Yeah, you cut out there a bit, but I I'll, I think I I'll summarize there. Um, there is a lack of this awareness on how, how the creative legal structure works. And I think me and Chandu are even still struggling with it <laughs> on how to actually go through that and splitting it up. And all this media, there's so many creative commons laws, um, licensing. And this is something that scares a lot of creators as well because they just want to create. But if you want to get serious of actually running a creative business, these are things you're going to have to deal with. So I guess to close this off, um, Jay, what would be your one takeaway on how to jumpstart your creative venture or business without being intimidated by all this? Would you say just start and face it as you hit that roadblock or are there certain things you got to take into account when you start?
2: Okay, I love this. Um, the very first thing is if you are trying to get paid for your creative work, Put together a portfolio. It doesn't have to be big. Put together two items, three items that you create yourself. It may not even have to do with another client. That's number one. Put together a portfolio. Number two is get familiar with templates of contracts on Google. And here are the basics of the contract that you need. If you're going to send this to a client, okay, the first is that you are a contractor the second thing is that you own everything until final delivery of the payment that means literally if you're a videographer everything that you've captured after you press that record button is yours until that client pays for the final version okay this is really important the second or the third thing is make sure that you have what's called usage rights. Usage rights. Usage rights means that even after the client owns the content, after that final payment, you as a creator can still use the content that you've created in your portfolio to help you get other clients. Okay, so portfolio, right, then legal documents with those things attached to it. And now it's time to find your first client, and here's how to do it. You ask everybody who has already bought creative work. You you find somebody who has already bought this thing, and here's why. You don't go after somebody who has never bought it, right? The reason is because you want to find someone who has experience working with a creative person Who won't abuse you. New clients who have never done creative work will abuse you. And they'll abuse you for two reasons. One, they don't know how much work it takes to be a badass creator. That's number one. So they're just going to ask you for shit that they don't even know if it's practical or correct to ask you. So they don't know. And then the second thing is you don't know what it feels like to be abused yet as a creator. Um, and so you don't know your boundaries. You don't know exactly how to say to a client, no, I can't do that, or no, it's in our marketing agreement that only two revisions come with the work. You don't know that yet. So if you find someone who's already bought creative work, go to them and say, Hey, I think there's a way that you could improve this. Um, you can be honest with them. You don't have to lie and say that you've worked with all these big name brands. They might actually find that to be a valuable asset of yours. So go find your first client. And then once you find that client, take such good care of them that it would break their heart if they never worked with you again. Do not get on this roller coaster of finding three clients, 10 clients, 12 clients, because I'm telling you, you don't even know how to handle one client yet. So handle one client at an excellent level. And then, before you even try to find another client, ask them to renew their contract. That's that's how you start building your agency. Okay, so those are my tips.
1: That's awesome.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've told people this before.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so Gregory just joined in. He said, "Oh, I'm glad. Go- oh my God, I'm late." But hey, I'm not. I'm hearing the good stuff, and he actually attests to what you just mentioned. Good, really. So, uh, so good stuff. Awesome. You know, that,
0: that was a great, great concise summary and very practical. And I think if you get that sorted out, especially the legal part, you will automatically build that self-esteem and have that confidence when you end up in a situation that's not necessarily in your favor.
2: Yes. And Diego, what will actually happen to is once you really take care of that first client then you will learn a lot of things that your next client will be really grateful that you know so i can't tell you how often i will approach a new client or they'll approach us and i'll say hey so um if you've never been through this before don't worry about it here are the next steps they love it because now we are guiding them through the unknown, right? And and so that's really important to clients. So but it all happens, it only happens if you really take care of your first client.
0: Awesome. I think that is a very good note to end this episode with. And but before we roll out, Sean Luke, anything left in the comments and final thoughts?
1: Uh- thoughts Uh, I definitely think we should have a returning guest here that's one thing Uh, I want to thank everybody like Diego always does for commenting it was really an interactive uh, evening again for everybody in the comments on Facebook on LinkedIn and on YouTube as you already know so also for Gregory who tuned in a little bit late today we're always on at at nine o'clock every Tuesday, nine o'clock Surnabee's time. But uh, I'll allow Diego to quickly tell the channels and the platforms where you can rewatch this. And then we'll close off with a final statement from Jay.
0: Yes. So uh, as you all know, Social convos is live every Tuesday, 9 p.m. sharp Suriname tha- Standard Time or 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for those in the... US or around the world. I think that's easier to uh, get. Um, the platforms are linked in YouTube and Facebook uh, and the website, of course. The official release of the full episode will be this following Saturday. So this is just some recap scheduling. And then it will be released on the website on convos.com and it will be pushed to all the mainstream podcasting platforms. So if you don't one can't watch the videos, you can just in your commute or during your workout, put out the podcast and listen to that. Um, yeah, that's uh, most of it. Uh, we appreciate you all comment commenting um, and there's more stuff to come. We are building this platform as we go and every week the feedback we get, it's really helping us build this up. So without further ado, Jay, uh, your final statement, what are you doing now? Where can people find you? What can people expect from you in 2021? And if you have a message, just drop another mic.
2: Well, we do everything very quietly. And a lot of the work is US-based. If you want to support it, then you can go to our website, which you guys can link to, and sign up for our email list where you'll receive my notes every week. These are candid, sometimes funny, most of the time meaningful posts about the criminal legal system in the U.S., if that's interesting to you. So that'd be a good way to support. Um, My final words would be whether you consider yourself a marketer or another type of creator or not. I have five words for you. Create like you mean it. Only create the things that have meaning.
1: awesome. That was Social Confos for this week. See you next week. Bye-bye.